eyes on me. Cause I'm young, black, and gifted, Nina, all eyes gon' see. If you swung back when faced with a challenge that's meant to break you and balance scales, you ain't average. Now throw your hands on three, gon' put them up for black magic. What's good, family? Welcome to another episode of the Black Men in Medicine podcast. I am your host, Corey Gatewood, bringing you that white coat drip. Today we're rocking with Dr. Emmanuel Boateng, ladies and gentlemen, another good brother, getting ready to drop gems on the Black Men in Medicine podcast. You know how we do on the show. Dr. Boateng attended Vanderbilt University for his undergraduate education. For medical school, he attended the Ohio State College of Medicine and has returned to Vanderbilt University, where he is currently a second-year resident in internal medicine. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Emmanuel Boateng. Welcome, my guy. All right, all right. Thanks for having me. Of course, bro. No question. So how does it feel, man? How does it feel to be back in the Music City? It's nice um, being back. Um, it was a little nostalgic at first. Vanderbilt is actually right across from where um, I slept in during my freshman year. Uh, my actual dormitory is across from the uh, the hospital. So every now and then, you know, I, I kind of look out the window and just have have those memories of as a little freshman when I drove in. My parents dropped me off, give my mom a hug, you know. But it's just you know nostalgic and it's it's refreshing. Is that what did it for you, being so close to the hospital as a freshman? Or did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? Oh, man. Actually, no, I did not. Um, back in undergrad, I actually didn't think much about medicine until um, more of my sophomore year. Uh, and I always knew I wanted to help people. I always knew that I was interested in the medical field and I was interested in sciences. But I didn't really like decide, decide until... Um, end of my sophomore year. Uh, and that's when I started trying to get some of those experiences under my belt, shattering research, you know, et cetera. And that's when I also learned that I had to take the MCAT. Surprise, gotcha. surprise. Um, but <laughs> Vanderbilt was, you know, you know, actually it's interesting because when I applied for medical school, I actually didn't get an interview at Vanderbilt. Shame on them. Um, uh, yeah. So it was just, huh? Shame, Shame on, on them. them. Exactly. Well, my program director might be listening. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, I, I left. Uh, and then when I got my interview for residency, I was like, I was like, I was, I was not taken aback. I was like, oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get one for medical school, but here I am now. I have the choice, you know, to go back or I can be like, or I can be petty and be like, nah, <laughs> no, but you know, <laughs> you're a clown, bro. <laughs> I'd be a fool to do that because you know, Vanderbilt was great. Um, so I, you know, an undergrad, I never imagined myself being on the other side of that campus. As you said, you know, it wasn't living in the dorm room across the street from the hospital. But what was it about being a physician that made you want to come into this field? Ever since we immigrated to America from Ghana, I saw my dad kind of help other people kind of help them, you know, immigrate here uh, to America. And, you know, America is seen as a land of opportunity, a land of dreams. I saw, you know, from a young age, my dad give, you know, help give other people opportunity, essentially. Right. And I, you know, I, I knew that that was something that I really admired, that he was able to help everybody. He was able to indiscriminately who sought help and was able to use his experiences to help bring them here. I knew that ultimately whatever career I chose, I would want I would want to help people in whatever capacity. I would want to give them opportunity. I think I, you know, instilling that in me 
still not firing me as a as a kid grew more and more and more and I kind of grew ambitious with it. I'm like, well, what can I what can I do to give people the ultimate opportunity? How do I help them, you know, the best that I can? And then I realized that medicine had the ultimate opportunity, the opportunity of health, essentially. Um, you know, I found that if I can give somebody their health, they can chase after their dreams, right? If I help, you know, somebody who's 20 years old, if I help them and I help them get better and get healthy, they can become whatever they want. I open up the opportunities for, you know, a lot for love, for family, for mm-hmm. a career, for op- and their future opportunities. I open up the opportunity for them to help other opportunities. It's kind of like this, this opportunity domino effect, essentially. Opportunity domino effect. I love it. And I know you're already down there in Nashville having an impact like that. Um, certainly sounds like your dad played a role in you becoming a physician. How about your mom? You know, my mom is somebody who's just so kind. Like she's just, she, she loves to help people. She always wants to mediate. She always wants to, she's always calm. You know, I think I get a lot of I'm a, I'm a, I find that I'm somebody who it takes a lot to get me angry. And even then I, I go about it in a calm way. I think I get that from my mom because she's a very calm individual who loves to mediate, who makes, wants everybody to be happy. And just growing up, seeing her be kind to everybody and seeing her to be just kind to herself, kind to my family members and her friends and everybody. I think something that's, that's that instilled in me the ability to be able to see and see and treat others as if they were my own kind, they're my own family and be able to project that and demonstrate that. And, and in everyday life. Big ups to your parents, your mom and pop sound like an amazing all-star team. Definitely can see why you chose to become a physician from having that kind of influence, but it didn't sound like either one of them were physicians themselves. Can you talk about being a first generation medical student and how you were able to navigate this path? So growing up, you know, I'm the only person in my family who's in the medical field. Um, and, you know, so I didn't really have like any mentors who were like, hey, you need to do this, you know, in order to um, get to this point of this training. You know, as soon as I decided I want to be a doctor, I was like, OK, well, can I had to figure out, you know, where to get those resources and kind of find the insight for myself. Um, I learned about the MCAT from my roommate at the time. Um, I was like, oh, whoa. You know, I didn't know we had to take this test. Um, I didn't realize that how important the sciences were prior. You know, it was just one of those things where I didn't realize how important my GPA in undergrad had to be in order to get me to medical school. I didn't realize how important this MCAT was. I knew that I needed to take it in order to get there, but I didn't really realize that the score could also be very limiting in terms of which schools you can pursue and which programs you can pursue. Um, I actually took the MCAT um, three times, you know, before getting into medical school. Um, the first time I took the MCAT, I just, it was the summer of my, um, of my junior year. I didn't realize that, hey, this is a test that like I have to sit down and I have to make sure I dedicate a good amount of studying to it because, you know, not that no one has, not, not that no one had told me or anything like that. I just didn't realize it was that kind of test. I didn't realize how, how hard, how difficult it was going to be. So I took the first test. I scored below the 40th percentile. Um, on it, you know, so obviously I was like, damn, I'm not going to medical school. So I, but you know, I had applied for medical school beforehand. And so my score auto-populated, I didn't know what I was going to get, you know, when I applied, I just assumed that it was all going to be great. It's all going to be dandy. 
Love the resiliency. As I always say, resiliency is the prerequisite for success. Can you talk a little bit about your process and what you had to do to be successful? So I got, obviously I got a lot of rejection letters because one, you know, my GPA wasn't terrible. As soon as I decided that I wanted to pursue medicine, actually somebody told me, and it was my organic chemistry teacher. She was looking at my scores and she was like, I was trying to get a letter of recommendation for a summer program that had a lot of shadowing. She was looking at my scores. She's like, I've sat on admission boards at medical school before, and you want to get your science GPA at least greater than the 3.3. And from that on, I was like 3.3, 3.3, 3.2. So I worked hard to get that up and whatnot. But it still wasn't, still wasn't, you know, at the quote unquote medical school, you know, GPA average of like mm-hmm. three seven and above that you see a lot of people having when they were through the admissions. Right. Um, but you know, so I, I took the first test. Um, and, uh, of course I was, I was discouraged and didn't get an interview anywhere. And I was thinking I was going to take a post back here. Um, and I'll speak a little bit more about that post back here, how, how I didn't know that you could do that too. Um, but and then of course the Ohio state university, uh, decided to take a, take a leap of, uh, faith with me and yeah, they yeah. offered me an interview. <laughs> they offered me a chance to uh, for contingent acceptance through the MedPath program, which forever grateful for. Um, and through that, you know, and it was funny because I actually took the MCAT in the interim while I was interviewing for the MedPath program as well. And my score didn't really change that much. Um, but, you know, I did MedPath and MedPath was just great to me. You already know I'm a fan of the MedPath program. Shout out to Miss Nikki. But talk a bit about your experience and how that led to your growth going into medical school. It showed me that I wasn't ready for medical school right outside of um, undergraduate, my undergraduate studies. It showed me what kind of studier I am. It showed me what kind of student I am and how I can make myself successful in that in that realm. Um, because, you know, MedPath program, you know, you know, you know a lot about it, Corey, but, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, you can tailor your year to what you want, what you need. You can tailor, you can take classes on those science classes that you didn't do well and that you needed to, you know, you need to improve on. And it, they, then they put you through a graduate level physiology class, histology class, they put you through all this, kind of put you through the ringer for a year. Um, and, you know, they have requirements in order to accept, to get, to accept you into the medical college. And one of them was, you know, taking the MCAT. And, you know, after that whole year, you know, I went from, and I know once again, I don't, I don't say any of this to, to my own horn or anything like that, but I went from being below the 40th percentile. And before I took the MCAT for my, you know, requirement, I went above the 90th percentile. I think I was like close to 95th percentile. Right. So that just <laughs> goes to show God that. Work. <laughs> Look at God work. Exactly. But that just goes to show like the hard work and grit. You know, when I was a MedPath, I paid attention. I hung on to everything my lecturer said. Every physiology class, every histology class, you know, we'd actually put us through an MCAT course, every MCAT course, you know, night and day, I would just hang on to it because, you know, I knew that I had a place I wanted to be. Somebody had offered me an olive branch for me to do that. So, you know, I, 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 I took that. I took the whole tree. You know, I didn't just take the branch, I took the whole tree and I, I worked hard, you know, to make it make sure that my spot in the next class was secured. You know, I love your story, Emmanuel. Truly inspiring. And not just for medical students, you know, whether you're a dental student, dancer, athlete, teacher, you're going to have those moments that just have your number or you have to be resilient to have that type of success that you want to have. And 
you continually do it. So what do you lean on or who do you lean on that garner this type of energy? One of the things I think I, I do well is I don't let setbacks keep me back. You know, I try to find a way around the setback or just push through the setback. Um, one of the things my sister said to me um, was, do your best, let God take care of the rest. Lord. And that has rung in my, yeah, that has rung in my ear, like, since organic chemistry. That's when she told me my sophomore year, I was, I was in terrible. And she's like, hey, listen, do your best, let God take care of the rest. No matter what, whatever setback came out way, that kept ringing in my ear. And that mantra, you know, I think that's what got me to where I am now, so... <laughs> Absolutely. You know, mantras, mindsets, those are all very important in the process, but I think mentors are also essential. Talk to us about some of your mentors and how they've played a role in your success. Before, um, before medical school, I would say my mentors were really, um, my, uh, my PI in my research lab. Uh, he, he really gave me a lot of encouragement um, he was able to get me on a project, um, and he deliberately made it so that I would be first author for this project. Gave me the kind of gave me the keys to the lab for the for one summer essentially, and just let me go in whenever to you know do my my Eliza's and get the data I needed, and you know just come together. And that you know that project did get published, and I was first author for that. Big ups, big ups. He was a big inspiration. Yeah, thank you. He was a big inspiration. Um, and I just I just love that he gave me that opportunity. It was funny because he was the uh, at the time he was the uh, chair of cardiovascular medicine at Vanderbilt. And I reached out as a sophomore, just like randomly. I was like, hey, I'm looking for research. Um, and he, he put me in his lab and, you know, to kind of took me under his wing, kind of helped me out, you know, and forever grateful, forever grateful to him. That's love right there. Drop a gem for all the mentors out there having an impact and changing lives. But you must have been a busy man, Emmanuel. Were you hitting the research lab before or after fencing practice? I don't think most people know this about you, but uh, Emmanuel was an avid fencer in college. I think you're probably the only fencer I know. How did you get involved with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, fencing. You know, it's interesting. I actually... When I when I when I went to Marinerboat, I had a friend who was a break dancer and a couple of friends who were just like they're just great dancers and I really wanted to learn how to dance. Um so one day we went to a rec center and he was, you know, I was gonna learn, you know, how to break dance, do some windmills, you know, you know, the cool stuff. You know? Right. Kind of challenge somebody in the middle of the road in the middle of the street, you know, <laughs> dance battle. Um, and then, and then in my corner, um, the fencing team walks in, we're in the, we're in the multi-purpose room and we're just, you know, I'm trying to dance. And then they come up to us like, Hey guys, you know, this is the room that we use to fence. Um, you guys are more than, they say you guys are more than, you know, welcome to stay here and, you know, dance and stuff like that. We're going to be over there fencing. Just wanted to just let you know. And I'm like, okay, cool, cool, cool. And then they're fencing. I, I look, I'm like, dang. That looks cool. You know, as a kid, you know, it brought up, it brought up all the, like, all the childhood uh, memories of, you know, grabbing a stick, pretending you have a sword and, you know, you know, battling it out with some imaginary character. Um, and I'm like, dang, there, <laughs> there it is right there. So I, uh, I went over after we danced a little bit, I went over and asked him like, Hey, can I try this? And, you know, I, I tried it and for, you know, four years, especially my first two years, and then kind of dwindled down a little bit, my involvement in the uh, fencing club, as I started doing, you know, more of the extracurriculars, getting ready for, 
med school, but I think my time in fencing, like doing that sport really showed me a lot. Showed me like how to be dedicated to something, how to just like kind of just like get thrown into something new and just like fall in love and just like continuously want to practice it and want to go there and showed me how I could work individualistically, but also work at, you know, for the collective good of the whole club because fencing, although, you know, you have a fencing club and you have a fencing team, it's a lot of individual, you can do a lot of individual tournaments. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like medicine in a way. In what ways? Um, Where, you know, you have your colleagues, you have your residency, but you can also, you can also build yourself, you know, as an individual in a medical field and expand your career, but you can also help others as well. And, you know, collaborate, um, collaborate and work together for the betterment of everybody. And fencing like had all of that. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know that at the time, you know, when I reflect, I'm like, oh yeah, fencing was just like the medical field in a way, minus the swords. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> well, I hope you're not using the words. Hey, everybody, everybody practices differently. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was, that was really cool. That for four years. Um, and you know, it's my claim to fame. <laughs> actually, actually, I actually was rated once, you know, okay. um, well, yeah, you know, I was a nationally rated, albeit it was the lowest rating, but nonetheless, it was a rating. Um, hey, yeah, celebrate all victories. I got third in a tournament once. Exactly, exactly. Third in a tournament and I got my rating. It was a happy day. Um, and I don't have the rating anymore because the last four years and I haven't fenced in a while because of medical school, but uh, I'm back at Vanderbilt. Hey, one of these days I may pick up the blade again. You know, show show those kiddos how it's done. Hey, I don't know, man. The competition is stiff nowadays. I don't know if you saw that medical student, Lee Kiefer, who won the Olympic gold in fencing. Oh, Crazy. dang. Like, I don't know how you can compete at such a high level while still managing to get your Anki in or your first A reading. It's crazy. Um, oh, man. You know, you, you know what? Yeah, and I'm older now, so my, my knees ain't what they used to be. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll leave it for the youngins. <laughs> Right. You know what's crazy, though? She wasn't even the only one. Um, Erica Agumakwe mm-hmm. was also a medical student competing in the Olympic Games. Oh, wow. Quick shout out to her big sisters, Neck and Shanae, who are doing their thing in the WNBA. I was fortunate to be at Stanford when they were out there dominating on all cylinders. Can you imagine this type of competition going in a residency application? Fortunately for you, you're done. Um but on that topic of applying to residency, you came through during COVID, the pandemic. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience coming through that process and what it was like for you as an intern being in such an unprecedented time? Seems so far away, but that was only like, you know, a few months ago I was an intern. Um, COVID, yeah. it was interesting, right? It's interesting because to me that felt normal, right? I didn't know what being a resident or intern was like outside of COVID. Right. Um, one of the one of the biggest differences is that in COVID times, because we couldn't meet up, we can meet more than like 10 people at a time or so. But based on the CDC guidelines and whatnot, we're adhering to there are a lot of we didn't do in-person conferences. Um, there are a lot of things that normally like morning report, noon conference and things like that, that were that were completely different. So we would have kind of worked through that. Um, so as an intern, you know, you're busy. You know, you're holding the pager, you're writing all the notes, you know, you're 
you're answering calls, communicating with a bunch of different consultants and, you know, nursing, et cetera. And sometimes it can be hard to learn on the job. Um, so having the noon conferences and having the morning reports were ways where you could just like dedicate time where you could just sit down, listen and absorb information. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't have that experience. And the other experience that we didn't have was that I still don't know what some people in my class look like. There are people who I see, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. oh, we're in the same class. Cool. Yeah. So the social aspect of residency was a little, it was, was a little harder to come by. One, it was hard to meet up in large groups. So it was hard to do like large functions as a, as a residency or um, my class together and meet everybody or meet everybody in the program, the leadership, et cetera. We had to do this in chunks. So, but, you know, I think that we did a very good job, Amanda, but I think that um, our chiefs worked really hard to find those, you know, those events where we could meet, where they had enough events where you can sign up for multiple things and still be able to cycle through different, you know, um, people and be able to meet other people, other people in your cohort and kind of build those friendships. Um, everybody was really like, everybody, everybody was going through it together, which kind of made it, which, which made it a lot better in that sense. Cause you know, like I said, residency is tough, right? And if you, it can be very easy to feel like you're alone. Um, but once you realize that you're not, it, all, all of it, all of it just like lifts, the, the the 14 hour shifts, you're like, ah, you feel energized because you did it with somebody else. And you know, you can talk about what you're going through with somebody else because you had the chance to meet up and talk and find those people who you connect with. How does this affect your relationships outside the hospital, especially relocating to a new city during this time? Um, my, my partner's mom, um, she, she was in that age group that would be at high risk if she was able to if she got contracted COVID, my own, my own parents were close to that age group as well. You know, right. um, I actually missed my, uh, my sister's wedding. The, um, so in Ghana, oh, we, wow. we do a traditional wedding and then we do a white wedding. Yeah. I had to, I had to stay home because I had just worked with shift and it was something that was, um, I, I had to decide like, you know, right then and there, because I was supposed to go, um, drive home to Memphis to be there, but I had just worked a shift where I had a patient who had COVID. Right. And there was going to, and there were going to be, and it was going to be a very, very small wedding, but I didn't want to risk getting my, my niece getting sick. I didn't want to risk, um, my future brother-in-law's parents getting sick because they were older as well. My parents getting sick, even though I had no symptoms and anything. And that was, that was just a tough part. Just kind of staying away from, um, staying away from, you know, family and friends because you don't want to get them sick. Of course, with the safety precautions and trying to decrease transmissibility of the COVID vaccine, we're certainly more challenging um, than typical years of becoming an intern. But in addition to that, what were some of the other things that provided added difficulty in such a unique year? Um, the work was always going to be hard because it's residency, nothing to, nothing to sleep on. But the things that help you through residency, the resilience, working out, gyms were closed, um, having social interaction, that was right. limited. Seeing family, that was mm-hmm. limited. Um, you know, all the free lunches. That was limited. That was limited. <laughs> all the free, that's, that's, you know, I mean, Vanderbilt was known for, you know, the a lot free of lunches. good food, you know. 
you know, there was, you know, sample different restaurants in Nashville. Yeah. We'd have our noon conferences. We would eat good. We would eat well. Okay. That's coming back. That's coming back slowly. You know, Absolutely. We, we got, we Nutrition a is a big part, Nutrition you know. It's important. Getting it's important. free lunches, you know, that saves a lot of money, <laughs> especially on the resident salaries and whatnot. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. But COVID aside... You know, getting to residency is something we look forward to for a very long time. You know, with the four years of medical school, the four years of undergrad. Once you got to residency, was it everything you imagined? Yeah, man. You know, it's one of those things where you don't know what it is until you get there. You have this idea. You're like, okay. oh, my residents, you know, why are they always typing? What are, what are they typing? Why are they always documenting? I mean, I'm done with my notes, but I'm only seeing three patients max. Right? As a medical student, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, where's this name? Yeah. Right, I got this. <laughs> it's, it's different. The difference between three and 10 is vast. Difference between eight and 10, you know, that can make or break your, you know, your day in terms of like your workflow and everything. I think that, you know, nothing can prepare you for residency unless you do residency. You can get you can get ready, right? You get ready. Same thing for nothing can prepare you for medical school until you start medical school. You think you're ready in undergrad and you may be ready to a certain extent, but nothing until you have that first day, you make the mistakes, you you know, you you struggle and then you figure out what works for you, you figure out the transition. I think, you know, it's just one of those one of those, you know, things that you have to learn. Um there's always a learning curve wherever you go. Um, but as far as like, you know, has residence been everything I thought and more? Residency has been great. It's been, it's been, and I, I speak like some, some wise hermit right now or some, some wise <laughs> old man. I have only been doing this for a year, but residency, if I, you know, it's, it's been great. It's been, it's been a struggle. Um, don't get me wrong. It's, it's hard, you know, because you're taking care of people. People's lives are literally in your hands. I mean, don't get me wrong. You have other people, you know, you're attending your seniors, um, other, you know, people in your cohort, other seniors, other attendants, people you can always reach out for. So you're never alone, but people's lives are in your hands. Right. Um, so and, you know, and that stress, you feel that stress. At least I did. I felt that stress, you know, coming in as a fourth year or transition from a fourth year medical student to an intern. I'm like, I don't think I know enough. I know enough. You know, I, I went to bed last night as a fourth year medical student, you know, worrying about how, how I couldn't go to Thailand because of COVID. And I woke up today <laughs> as an intern. Um, I don't know any, I don't know anything more than I did, but suddenly everybody's like, Hey doctor, Hey doctor, do we need to do this? I'm like, who me? No, no, you mean that person next to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're talking to me. You making eye contact, real strong eye contact. Um, so it was just one of those things that 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 just kind of like I had to get a, I had to adjust to like, okay, well, I'm the doctor now. I know. I mean, I'm not the doctor, the only one, but I'm a doctor now. And when I get a page, you know, I have to decide about something. That's love, Emmanuel. Just love to see your growth, man. From watching you run the halls of. Graves and Miling, and now you're over at Vanderbilt doing your thing as a resident. Now that you are in residency, you know, what's what's something that brings you fulfillment about getting to where you are right now? Something that allows you to get up and want to be great and go to your go do your job um, day in and day out. I love that I'm learning something new every single day. 
I love that I am amassing this knowledge and a certain skill set that will forever be useful. I love that my mom, you know, she has diabetes that like when I went home as an intern and I recognized that she was having these dizziness spells, I'm like, and she's on insulin. I'm like, oh, your insulin must be too too high for you. You know, maybe you should ask your doctor about your A1C and by getting off insulin and switching you back to metformin. I love that I can look at her medicine medication list and be like, okay, boom, boom, boom. You're on the right goal direct medical therapy. You are on a therapy you need for your insulin. This is what you need to do in order to get, not insulin, but diabetes, which you need to do to get your A1C down. I love that my parents can call me, my family members can call me and be like, hey, this is what's going on. Um, What can I do? I can give them some advice. I can tell them what, you know, what I think is going on, what they should bring up to their doctor and how they can, certain questions that they should ask their doctors, which tests and everything before. And I can, I can kind of like coach them through your doctor's appointment. You know, I love that. I'll know, I'll forever know that I can have the skill set that I can help anyone except I can help kids to a certain extent. Um, I'm no pediatrician, but, um, but I can help just a wide range of people. Um, and it just feels great. Have you been put in a position where you've had to take care of a patient like outside of the clinical setting, like on an airplane or, you know, out, out at a restaurant or anything like that. The other day I was driving, uh, it wasn't the other day, but it was like maybe a month or so or two months ago where I was just driving down. It was an accident before the EMS came down. I walked out of my car and, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do too much, but, you know, I went there and I just wanted to give them the reassurance. Like, Hey, I'm Dr. Vanderbilt, you know, um, no, let me, let me assess the patient. Let me figure out what's going on. Is it something that, you know, now I can relay certain information to the EMS people when they come because this patient's already been seen by somebody right then and there. Now they can have this on the radar, especially when they're driving them to communicate to the main hospital, the main ER and whatnot. So I think that I just, I just love the knowledge that I'm learning every single day. Absolutely. As you've alluded to, knowledge is powerful. Can you recall... Uh, any patient encounters where, in addition to your knowledge, your race, your culture, your background, um, in which you've shared with a patient and that's improved efficacy or been more successful in implementing your patient care? You know, I think I see most a lot of all of this in my clinic. When I, whenever I have a black patient, instantly we connect. Instantly, I feel like they're more comfortable. Um, I don't know what their past experiences are, so I won't speak to that. But I've, it feels as though they're more comfortable, um, open, and will say, you know, certain things about past um, interactions they've had. Oh, they didn't tell me this or this, that, and the third. And, you know, I feel like, you know, just being able to see somebody who looks like you in a position where you wouldn't expect to see them or you would expect your physician to be black, I think that it just it breathes a certain kind of calmness, certain kind of confidence to speak up about what's going on, knowing that it won't be passed on. Um, I'm not saying that it is, but I'm just saying, uh, speaking from experience or walking into an inpatient room and, you know, talking to a patient and then realizing like, oh, you're black, meaning that you're going to advocate for me no matter what, or just like kind of like in a way, a sigh of relief. You know, um, I had a patient, um, and I was, as I was leaving, um, you know, and this was a black patient and, um, or family member who was taking care of a patient. And I was like, hi, I'm going off service. Um, 
And, um, you know, but don't worry, the person coming on service is also black, you know, in their eyes. And then because you yeah. can't see their mouth or anything because everyone's wearing masks, but in their eyes, you can see relief. You could be like, oh, great. Yes. Another person who um, of my own skin color is coming. So um, I think that it's, it's, it's very important to be able to show that in medicine, there are people like us. It's very important to be able to advertise that to, you know, everybody, right? You know, growing up, I didn't really think too much of, oh, you know, I'm pursuing medicine as a minority. I didn't really think too much of that um, until like I got to that stage. And then I, when I, so for example, when I did MD camp at Ohio State, you know, I didn't realize how impactful it was for all the minority children, that not children, um, all the minority students, you know, they're in high schoolers, so, you know, I won't call them children, um, to see me right. and, you know, realize that, oh, they too can reach where I'm at too. Um, but going back to the patient interaction, I think it's just, it's just one of those things where the comfort level, the comfort level and the ability to help them gets taken to the next level when they realize to hear somebody who is like me, somebody who would take everything I say, clearly somebody who would advocate for me. And I think that, but it's not just, I just want to say it's not just, you know, me. I think that, you know, you don't have to be a minority or person of color to be able to advocate for your patients. And I think everybody does that. I think everybody tries to do that as much as possible. But there's a certain connection that when you see somebody who looks like you, that it's, it's, it's hard to overcome. So that's why we need more. We need more just minorities in medicine, more black men in medicine, more Latinos in medicine. We need, we need more of us medicine because... When you look up, when you look at the face of America, it's changing every single year. The diversity is increasing. You know that. You know that, and you can look at what people project what the diversity is going to be like in 2050. You know, so the our society is changing. Medicine should change with it. The face of medicine should look like the society should reflect the people it's treating. And this is why we need more of us because you can do a lot. You can go a long way. You know, by just talking to somebody who looks like you. Do you have an example of when you think that this cultural similarity played a role in you helping someone get a procedure that they may have otherwise opted out of? The other day I had a patient who, you know, who's, you know, black female. She hadn't got a colonoscopy before, or she had one, you know, but she was due for another one. And she was like, I don't really need to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and this, that, and there. And I looked at her dead in the eye and I was like, you know how, you know, you know how we, you know, you, you know, you like, you know, we, our culture predisposes to certain things and you just explain that to them, you know, coming from me, I felt that it was more monumental getting her, talking to her and having her, you know, agree to get a colonoscopy. I feel like it's more, po- not more powerful, but I feel like it's, it, it was easier for me to convince her because I'm somebody of the same skin color. So it's, you know, I, and somebody from a similar background. So I'm able to connect with her and she knows that I'm recommending this because I truly care for her. Not once again, not saying that other physicians don't care for her, but I feel like it takes it to the next level when somebody who looks like you from the same background as you kind of gives you that advice. Absolutely. You know, Emmanuel, you bring up a great point. You know, that power of connection through culture um, is effective on so many layers, right? It's body language, facial expressions, um, subtle things that we may not even realize we're using to take in information. Um, So it's extremely powerful. There's already literature that shows, you know, when you see a physician that looks like you, 
patients are more receptive and more adherent to taking medical advice, you know, so it's, it's in the data. Um, but you know, again, to the, the point about the body language, you know, I know there are certain cultures that are extremely offended by, uh, the way we sit, for example, like in America, we sit figure four style with our right heel on resting with our right heel resting on our left knee. Right. Um, and for us it's commonplace, right. In America, plenty of people sit like that, but there are some cultures that that's extremely disrespectful because the heel of the shoe is facing, is facing someone. And so can you imagine trying to build a rapport with someone who every encounter, every every minute of that meeting you're being disrespectful is going to be extremely limiting in the type of effect and impact you can have in delivering medical care. And that, and that's something that you would know. Um, so drop in gems, Emmanuel. I love it. Um, you know how we do on the show on the black men in medicine podcast. Um, but in the spirit of dropping gems, can you leave a piece of advice for, you know, our medical students, uh, third and fourth years in particular, in terms of clinical experience and ways to, um, be better on the wards. Yeah. I would say, look at where you want to be. Right. Right. Look at where you want to be in the next five years. Right. Mm -hmm. Think about how you can get there. Think about who, you know, is there. Mm -hmm. One touch base with them and figure out how they got there. Keep that in your mind. Keep that in your mind. And as you move forward, do those things that they did. Jim, for real. But elaborate on that thought for us. Whether, for example, um, you know, if you... I met a resident when I started who I thought was phenomenal. That This resident, because, you know... They, they, they taught me one thing. They taught me, not one thing, they taught me many things, but one of, one of, among those things was how to pre-round um, properly. And I used that to increase my efficiency. And I use that to this day. I use it throughout the whole year. And this is the same thing I pass on to um, other interns that I've worked with too. Um, I've only worked with a few since I'm only a month in, but I've passed it on already. And, you know, I look at, this is the president who's a role model for me. And I asked him, I was like, okay, you know, how did you get to where you're at? How do you know everything in medicine, it seems like? What are the resources you use? And this person gave me, you know, all the resources. They, they had a list and they're like, you can choose from this. And this person sat down with me and was like, okay, how do you like to learn? Okay, out of all my resources, this is what correlates best with how you like to learn. And, you know, so finding, identifying that individual, identifying, you know, somebody who you can talk to who's there and figuring out how they got there and then adapting that you know, to fit you and working on that, that it's a work in progress, that you will get there. I think that's very, very important. However elusive that uh, explanation was. The other thing you should realize is that, you know, medicine is a, is an up, it can be an uphill battle at times. You know, it may not go the way you want it to. Facts. Scores may not be where you want it to be at mm -hmm. that time. Um, you know, and there can be a lot of things that tell you like, you know, you're not going to make it. You're not going to do well. You're not going to match. You're not going to do this. It can be from voices you're hearing. It can be from yourself. It can be from everybody else. It can be from statistics. Um, I think the one thing you have to realize is that you are none of that. You, the voices in your head and the voices you're hearing from other people, they, they, they mean nothing to you unless you let them mean something. Unless if you assimilate all that, then it will bring you down. Right. But you are an individual. And you are capable. You've made it where you are at 
not from, you know, sheer luck, but from hard work and grit. You know, it was something, it wasn't something that you were given. It was something that you worked for and you were continuing to work for. Don't forget that. Um, you know, if you were struggling, realize the struggle is only momentary. The struggle is something that will go away. You just have to bite down and get through it. Bite down, figure out how you're going to get through it, talk to people. You know, there, there's a reason why there are hundreds of people in the medical school you're at. There's a reason why there are a bunch of doctors in medical school you're at. Feel, don't, don't forget to reach out to those people, especially people who look like you, or especially people who have kind of gone through the same experiences as you, but have been successful to reach out to them and be like, how did you get through this? You know, I'm struggling. How did you get through this? Don't be afraid to admit, don't be afraid to be vulnerable and admit when you need help because that's the only way you're going to succeed when you're struggling. Yeah. What is something you keep in mind when you're in moments like this? Because in some circumstances, you know, people have been doing what they've always done and has been successful. However, now it's, it's, it's no longer effective. So what is something you keep in mind when you're in moments like this? I think that the biggest thing you need to do, the biggest thing for your success is patience with yourself, giving yourself grace and not tearing yourself down at every little mistake. You know, we've worked hard, but then we, you might, you might become a perfectionist. Like, ah, this isn't going as well as I wanted it to be. I don't have the exact scores to get to this rotation, to get to this, you know, residency, et cetera. If you want to get somewhere, right, you, you sit down, you think of a plan, you figure out how to get there. Right. You want to get to medical school. So you figured out how to get to medical school. Right. It's the same thing for residency. It's just another step. It's just another step. It doesn't have to be now. It could be a year from now. But the biggest thing is patience to work hard and patience um, and just having a stake in it for yourself and not and not bring yourself down. I cannot stress how important that is to realize that you will succeed as long as you trust yourself, as long as you keep working hard. It's a simple formula, simple formula, but it's so hard and so, and it can be so easy to forget that when you're in the midst of struggling and you're in the midst of tearing yourself down, you are your worst enemy, right? So, you know, you need to be your biggest advocate. I think you, I truly think you learn more from when you're struggling than when you're just succeeding. I'm not saying, oh, a struggle or anything like that, but you pay attention to yourself, pay attention to your thoughts and pay attention to your state when you are not where you want to be or when you want to be somewhere else and figure out like, what am I doing now? That's detrimental to myself. What do I have control over? What don't I have control over? Things that I have control over, I need to make sure that I'm doing my best in order to overcome that and everything else is going to get, you know, get taken care of. Remember, do your best, let God take care of the rest. I know the demands to residency are endless. So what's been your approach to the ever elusive work-life balance? Oh man, Ooh, that's 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 that that's an ongoing goal right there. It, it changes, it changes with like every rotation. Um, some rotations are easier than others, so it can become easier. Excuse me, I don't like to call it work life balance. I just like to call it life now. I'm I'm that I I'm uh, I'm getting uh, more wiser. I'm like, well, you know, my I find that you know the line blurs, especially in what we do. You're always thinking about your patients. You're like, okay, and even if I'm not working, I'll check my patient list. Oh, what happened to them over the weekend? Or what happened to them overnight? If I'm in clinic, I'll answer my inpatient baskets, right? So there's a blurred line, right? So it's just life. And I think the best way to do is just time management. 
that's the best way to achieve the elusive work-life balance or just a balance in general. Gems. Um, you know, manage, be deliberate. This is something I'm trying to get better at, 100% better at. You know, I think in, as an intern, it was always work, 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 work. Now, as a, you know, as a senior, I'm trying to figure out how to make sure I advance my, my myself academically and advance my career, but also work, but also make sure that I'm, you know, paying enough attention to um, home, paying attention to my partner, paying attention to my family, making sure that, like, you know, I'm actually being, being a well-rounded individual, you know. And um, I'm, I think that the thing, and as an intern that made it hard, was like, oh, I'm a new doctor. I'm like, I got to figure out how to be a doctor first, right, before I, anything, you know, and I think that that was that was the, that was an okay approach then. I think that as you get more experience under your belt, you you got to figure out okay. Now I figured out how to you know kind of be an intern, how to be a doctor ish. You know now let's next make sure that I'm not you know forgetting the things that are important to me in this whole process. Because if you continue on the same route of just like focusing on work, you're gonna burn and crash. So it's very essential to figure out this balance and. I think the best way, like I said, is time management. You know, allocate the time that you think you're going to need for something. Make sure you're, if, if it's something that's going to take more than 15 minutes to do, schedule it. Try to schedule it. Try to put, you know, a time frame on it. You're like, okay, well, you know, if I need to talk to Bay, um, I know that talking to Bay is going to take, you know, it's going to take, we talk at least two hours, you know. Um, I need to make sure that I allocate this block of time, make sure nothing, nothing comes, you know, nothing, um, comes ahead of it, nothing interrupts it. Make sure that I block this time right then and there. Because I know that's going to bring me happiness and that's going to also make sure I'm sustaining my long-distance relationship with communication, et cetera. As with most things, the key is to continue growing and evolving and eventually you'll find yourself where you want to be. You did say, you know, you set aside time to talk to Bay. Do you think it's easier to have a partner that's also in medicine? Yeah, oh man, it's, uh, so, so when you're, when you're, it's easier when you are in the same city. Um, and then when, when you're, you know, it can become harder too when, uh, extra level of stress when you're in like differences, I think, in my opinion, I think that it's very, it's one of those things you have to sit down. You have to be honest. This is the time I have. This is the time when I'm free. Right. And you got to work through it together. I'm fortunate enough that, you know, my partner is somebody who is also in medicine, somebody who, you know, so they understand um, that the demands, they understand the time frame, they understand that like, oh, you know, that I'm always like, I don't have a set shift. Like my mom's always asking me, are you on nights now? Are you on days now? I never know what, what your schedule is. She's, she's constantly, constantly asking what my schedule is. You know, it's, it's nice to have somebody who understands that like, oh, you know, that although I'm scheduled for a six to six shift, I may be there until 10 p.m. Because, you know, you leave when the work is done. You leave when make sure your patients are stable. Make sure that things are OK for the night team. You don't you don't leave your work not done, you know, essentially, if that makes sense. As, if, if, if as much as as done as it can be. Right. But if a patient's crashing, you're not going to be like, well, it's six o'clock. <laughs> I know your heart rate is 100 and 160 and you're an AFib with RVR and your blood pressure is going down, but I got to go. No, you're not going to do that. Yeah, see know, you when I see you. Right. You're just going to, you're going to stay, you're going to stabilize the patient. You're going to help them. Right. And, you know, 
it's nice having somebody who understands that like, hey, if we have plans at six o'clock, six thirty, that those plans may may go away because of something that comes up at work. So the best thing is having that open communication and and just whether they're in medicine or not, just having that open communication and this is and just being honest from the get go. This is the time I have. Absolutely. You know, of course, there's no way to plan for these unforeseen events that come up in medicine. That's that's part of the job. But are there any unique ways that you try to build in more time with your partner? No. When I was an intern, I used to live uh, my my commute to work would be about like maybe 20 minutes to, an, to a half hour. So me and my partner, we, we were like, hey, you know, this drive to work at the very least, regardless of how busy we are, we'll make sure to talk on this drive to work and back. Right. So we made sure to talk every single time because you know, and then we, it wasn't that we would just talk that 30 minutes when I came home. You know, we would still talk. We were still doing things, but at least we made it and we made an effort to make sure that we talked about our highs of the day, what our day was like and whatnot during that time frame. And just to make sure that because we're, I mean, we're testing, you know, throughout the day, but just to talk and hear each other's voices, and just those, those simple compromises, knowing that we can't, you know, sit down like how we did, you know, and, you know, it's not that I can come home. We can just eat dinner together and then we can do this night and third. Sometimes you got to work at home. Sometimes you got to you just got to got to find that balance and find that person who's going to work with you and just have that open communication. You mentioned some of the benefits of having a partner in medicine, such as perspective and understanding about your day-to-day. What are some of the challenges you have to look out for when you're dating someone that's also in medicine? It can be harder because when you both are busy, it's hard to, it can be easy to get swamped up in the work and get swamped up in the stressors where you, you know, it can be harder to also bring it back home. Um, whereas, you know, cause you can, it can make it hard to unplug from medicine because you're both in medicine, you're both talking about medicine. Whereas if your partner is not in medicine, it can be very easy to come and unplug cause you have you can talk about it and, you know, but you, there's, it's, it, you want to find something, a mutual interest or something that you guys can both talk about, right? right. It's like your partner is going to not want to hear about your patients, yeah. you know, the whole time <laughs> you guys are at home, right? right. But, it, but when you both have a general interest in medicine, you just want to go back and forth and then it can be hard to separate from it. So mm-hmm. I think it's easier in that aspect for the scheduling and making sure somebody's like, so there's somebody there who knows exactly what you're going through. Um, but as far as like um, other aspects of it, like unplugging away and getting away from it, too. Sometimes you do want to, yeah. unplug it can be harder. It can be harder to. They have the pros and cons. As you bring that up, what are some of the things you do to unplug? Oh yeah, um, I I like to you know the stereotypical things the the um, the workout you know, but I love to eat. Oh man, I love to eat. You know. When, when I'm eating, when I'm eating, it's me and the food in front of me. I can eat for hours. Um, no, but I love, <laughs> I love, um, I love just exploring, kind of exploring Nashville, figuring out the the fun spots here, um, food wise and stuff like that. You sound like a true foodie through and through. What's your favorite restaurant out in Nashville? Oh man, there's too many. There's right now. I'm on. I'm on this. Uh, there's this. Um, this food truck. This Korean Mexican. Um, this Korean Mexican uh, fusion cameo chino is so good, so good, man. They have some of the best Korean. Time. If you are in Nashville, Charlotte Pike. I don't know the actual number, but Charlotte Pike. Find this, find this food truck. You won't be disappointed. If you are disappointed, I will pay your next meal. But that's my favorite spot right now because it's just I can eat that for days. I think when I first learned, when I first found it, I went there five days in a row for dinner. 
No kidding. <laughs> I tried everything on the menu. So um, <laughs> besides that, Nashville has a lot of, you know, it has a lot of greenery. There's a lot of things to do here. I love going on walks. I love going on walks. And there are hills here too. Just getting, just getting away and just like kind of looking over the city skyline, taking a deep breath, just kind of just enjoy, you know, kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, existing and being here. Um, Nashville has uh, Percy Warren Park's great park, huge park. You can go hiking, beautiful there. It's nice. It's like it's so interesting. You have you have the city, and then you have this 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 nature that allows you to unplug so easily. You're just surrounded. Cell phone service is not that great, so you know there you go. Um, and it's not just <laughs> it's not just a regular park. You know, it's 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 it's, it's nice. It's a nice nice bit of nature. I don't know how big it is, but Needless to say, it's it's enough to make you feel like you're in a different environment, like you're in a different city. Um, so like hiking and just staying home watching TV, you know, talking to friends, just making sure I catch up. You know, those are the things I do to unplug because those are and it's the little things, you know, like because when you're so busy, it can be so easy to get swamped up in what you're doing. It's easy to get swamped up in the medicine that you forget to do the little things like, you know, make like, you know, make sure you call your mom, your parents, check up on them. That you those those little things when you make when you find time and you make sure you do that and you put intentionally put that in your schedule and succeed in doing that, it feels so good. You still staying in tune with the anime? I know that was your jam. Oh heck yeah. Man, heck yeah. <laughs> no, I watch oh man, yeah. I watch I, I read a lot more now too because um it can be very easy to unplug at work. When when you when there's a lull, you know, I can just pull up my phone, sit back and just read some manga and just just like unplug from the world. You don't get a page for like twenty minutes. That's like that's like three chapters right there. Oh yeah, I'm still watching anime through and through. Yeah. Love it. Love to hear it. Don't ever change, Dr. Boateng. <laughs> never. I never will. But before I let you go, I want to ask you one question I ask all the guests on the show. Uh, what are the three principles that have been pivotal to your success to date? I would say patience. And, I, and I'll clump this together. I would say patience with yourself, right? And patience with the world. Patience with yourself because you didn't make sure you gave yourself grace. You didn't make sure that you understand when you're being hard on yourself and you give yourself slack, right? Understand that you're not perfect. Understand that you have room to grow and that you will grow and just, you know, enjoy being who you are in this time and space, even if you aren't the ideal individual that you perceive yourself to be. And patience in the world to allow you to succeed, patience in others as well, and realize that they're coming from different perspectives as well, that the world is coming from a different, whole new perspective as well, and not to take the world's perspective of you and assimilate that. So I think patience with the world and patience with yourself. Um, I would say family, 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 because family is my support system and family encompasses everybody. My, the lifelong friends that I've had, my own biological family, you know, um, you know, my partner and her family, I think that, you know, they're all my family and they, they support me and they're the pillars that keep me sane. Whenever I need anything, I know I always have them to stand on. Um, so patience with yourself and patience with the world, family. And I would just say just being authentic and holding true to who you are, never losing that. I, you know, for example, I like to have fun on the job. 
Um, I crack jokes all the time. I, you know, I treat patients like they're my friend. I treat my coworkers, you know, like their family. I treat everybody the same. You know, I talk to everybody the same. I crack dag jokes for patients. Um, and I, I, lo- I love it because it makes, because I mean, like I said, you know, medicine, it's like my life. So I won't treat it any different than any other aspect of my life. Don't get me wrong. I'm very serious. You know, I'm very serious with their care and with my job. But I allow my personality to shine. I don't change that because I know that I want to, I want, I see them for them. So I want them to see me for me and who I am. So I bring that to the table. So um, being yourself and being authentic, your family and patience with yourself in the role, I would say are the principles that I've kind of adopted and keep me going right now. Three more gems for you, ladies and gentlemen. Patience, family, being authentic. Loved having you on the show, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Emmanuel Boateng. We did that. If you want to find out more about what we're doing with the Black Men in Medicine movement, you can check us out at www.blackmenandmed.com, www.blackmenmed.com, where you'll see highlights of black male physicians holding down the mission to serve in the hospital and surrounding communities. We provide a platform for medical doctors down to the pre-medical level to get connected with mentorship, scholarships, and collaborative medical projects. We are here for change. We are here to stay. Let's get connected. Make sure you tune into another episode of the Black Men in Medicine podcast, bringing you nothing but the gyms.